Well, good morning, church family. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, Those of you who are tuning in online, we're glad that you've joined us this morning for worship too. My name is Hunter Sewell, and I'm the college pastor here at Living Hope. And uh, I'm really excited to be with you this morning as we open up God's word. Uh, Last week, we started a new series called See the Need for Love. And to say that our world is in need of love would be a a pretty gross understatement, I think. Uh, We live in a world that is desperate for love, but desperate ultimately for the true love that comes through Christ. And so this morning, I think that this is an unbelievably appropriate uh, topic for discussion, topic for our sermon. Uh, and I'm so thankful that by God's providence, this is where he brought us. And so uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And we're also going to be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 27. So I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to the, the passage in Matthew. Uh, and as you're flipping there, I think uh, I want to just give a word of caution Oh, also, you can take your masks off. I forgot to do that again. Uh, so if you, you can take your mask off. But I want to give you a word of caution as you're flipping there. That, uh, if you grew up in the church like I did, you'll probably turn to that passage and you'll find this to be a very familiar passage. And then when we flip to Luke here in just a few minutes, you'll also find that to be a, a pretty familiar passage. And I just want to encourage you uh, and, and give you a word of caution. As we come to these texts, sometimes when we become so familiar with the text, we tend to just gloss over them. And though this may be the hundredth time you've read this text, I want to encourage you to approach it as if it were the very first time you'd heard it. I want you to ask the Lord as we pray here in just a few minutes to just humble your heart, give you fresh eyes, that you might see what his word says, that you might live it out in your life. As James says, that we want to be not only hearers of the word, but hearers and doers of the word. And so uh, if you would mind, please stand with me in honor of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And then I'm going to pray. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 starts like this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning uh, with humble hearts. Lord, we come before you grateful for your word and for what it teaches us. We come before you expectant that you would move in our hearts, God, this morning. Lord, we recognize that our world is in great need of a lot of things. Most importantly, it's in need of you. And so, Lord, we know that you have placed us here as your ambassadors, as your church. You have saved us, you have reconciled us, and you've restored us. And you are restoring us that we might be ambassadors and agents of reconciliation to this world. And Lord, as we come to this text, it's, it's an often familiar passage for several of us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh understanding, that you would give us fresh eyes to see these things. Lord, I pray that we would behold your glory in your word and that our lives would be transformed as a result. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, the title for our sermon today is Love Your Neighbor. And so the focus of our time this morning is going to be spent answering two questions. First, who is my neighbor? And secondly, how do I love them? But before we get there, I want to show you a few things. There's a few things I want you to notice uh, about this passage in Matthew 22 before we get to kind of the practical side of things. And uh, in terms of context, Jesus here in Matthew 22 is speaking to a man who's a Pharisee. Uh, And the Pharisees were one of the religious groups uh, that were kind of the leaders of the Jewish community way back in the day. And and these guys didn't really like Jesus. Jesus often challenged their authority. He challenged their hearts. And so this Pharisee has come to him. And this Pharisee specifically is one that's identified as a lawyer. 
And so we know that he was uh, knowledgeable in the Mosaic law, in the Old Testament law. So this guy had studied the law his entire life. So he comes, and the scriptures tell us the purpose for why he comes to Jesus. He says he comes to him to test Jesus. He wants to catch Jesus in a lie. He wants to trip him up. He wants to trap him so he can, you know, he can, he can accuse him of something. He can accuse him of blasphemy so he can turn people against him. And he asks him this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Now, this is a really, really big question. And we might not think, well, there's not much to this, but there were actually 613 commandments. There were 248 do's and 365 don'ts. There were enough do's, one for every bone in the human body, and enough don'ts, one for every day of the year. So this question that he's asking him is a big question. There's a lot of commandments that Jesus could have picked from. But Jesus, who's as wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove, he saw right through what this man was was asking. This wasn't a knowledge problem for this Pharisee. This was an obedience problem. He didn't want to obey. So Jesus addresses him in verse 37 by telling him something that he knew already. He said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So what Jesus has done here, he's quoted the Hebrew Shema. It's a confession of faith that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it starts with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So again, the Pharisee knew the answer to this question. Jesus was just taking him to a place that he already knew where he was supposed to be, but he was exposing the heart of disobedience. So he adds a comment, which is interesting, though, because he just asked, which is the great commandment. Jesus says, this is the first and great commandment. That's what he says in verse 38. So in other words, above all the other commandments, above everything that you could do with your existence, Jesus says, this is the, the most important thing, to love God with all of your being. Everything that you have, loving him is greatest in importance and it's first in preeminence. It is the single most important thing you can do. And I want to just encourage you to please listen to what Jesus has to say here. There's nothing that we can do. There's no accomplishment so great, no accolade that we can achieve. There is nothing that can even compare to experiencing his love through Christ and loving him in return. That is the single most important thing that you could do with all of your life, with all of your existence. And as we talk a little bit today about how we love our neighbors, this is the place where it starts. And so if you're taking notes, this is the first uh, kind of note that you can make. Disciples of Jesus love their neighbors best when we love God first. This is a crucial truth for us to understand. Disciples love best when we love God first. God has loved us with so great a love in Christ Jesus. And that's what we just celebrate as we observe communion, that Christ has come, that he died in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised. And he's now seated at the right hand. He has made forgiveness of sins possible. That's what we celebrate. And we love him because he has loved us first. And it's out of the overflow of that love relationship that we have that we're able to love others. But it starts with our relationship with God. If we do not love him first, then we will grow weary and exhausted of loving others. So we've got to make sure that that's right. We've got to make sure we have that in the right order. Loving God is preeminent. That's the primary thing that we can do with our life. And loving our neighbors as ourselves is an outflowing of that love. So that's the first thing that I wanted us to see. The second thing I want us to see is why we love our neighbors. In verse 39, Jesus raises the stakes. So he says, loving God is the first commandment and the greatest commandment. And then he says in verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting the scriptures. This Pharisee would have known this, but again, it's not a knowledge problem. It's an obedience problem. So he says, Leviticus 19.18 is what he quotes him. And it says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. I've always been a pretty curious person. When I was growing up, I used to 
uh, ask the question of why, and I'm sure none of your children or none of you ever asked the question of why when your parents told you to do something, uh, but just pretend with me for a second that you were like me, pretty curious and slightly rebellious, and your mom and dad have asked you to uh, put your clothes away or to you know, clean up your room or something like that, and they've asked you like the 15th time, put your clothes away, put your clothes away, and so your mom tells you, put your clothes away, and you say, Why? And before she loses her mind or her head pops off of her body, because I've seen that happen too, she responds with something like, because I said so, right? Has it ever happened to anybody before? Or anybody ever been guilty of saying that? Yeah, me too. But I've always uh, understood that as something that I didn't really love. I always wanted to know the answer for things. And so I didn't take that well all the time. But sometimes I think that that's the understanding that we have when we come to God's word. Is that when we see something in God's word, we just do it because he said so. And we use that as a because God said so. And that's not, a, that's not a wrong thing, but God gives us a reason for why we are to love our neighbors. And I realized as I was studying this passage in Leviticus, it's not because God said so that we love our neighbors, but it's because that's who God is. It's because who he is. Look at Leviticus 19, 18 again. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19 is a chapter full of laws, full of ways that people are supposed to interact with each other. And each one of those things ends with that same phrase, I am the Lord. And what that is, is God has linked his covenant name, his, the, the name that he has made covenants with for the salvation of his people. He's linked that to the command to love hit your neighbor as yourself. And so the reason we love our neighbors as ourselves is not because God said so. Yes, he did say so, but it's more than that. It's because that is who God is. He is a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the way that he describes himself in Exodus 34, 6. 196 times the phrase steadfast love is connected to the name of the Lord in the scriptures. 127 times in the Psalms alone. That's who God is. He is a God who's slow to anger, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And so the reason we love others is because that's who God is. God is love, and he's formed us in his image, and he's saved us that we might be a reflection of who he is. And I also want you to notice here in verse 39, too, the quality of the love that we're supposed to have for people. He says, you're supposed to love your neighbors as yourself. And as I was thinking about, you know, what, is, what does this really look like? How do I love my neighbor as myself? I was uh, listening to a, a sermon from John Piper, who's someone that I, I really enjoy uh, listening to, and, and he said this, he said, this is an overwhelming statement. I say it's overwhelming because it seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and I wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am the other person and all the longings that I have for my own safety, my own health, my success and my happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. And that is an overwhelming statement. Christ has demanded that we love others as ourselves. So all the affection, all the love, all the desire for happiness, for success, for health, all the things that you desire for yourself, to tear that off of yourself and to place that around somebody else, that is a huge, huge statement. But that's the way that we're supposed to love others. So that's the second thing I wanted you to see. The third thing I wanted you to see is what follows these two commandments. So Jesus has said, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what he says in verse 40. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, this is another huge statement. I hope you're starting to, to grasp the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. This is not just a, a passing comment that Jesus makes. Like, this, is a, this is a big, big deal. 
On these two commandments hangs all the law. All of what we read in the Old Testament, all of what we read in the law and the prophets hangs. It depends on these two commandments. In the same way that a door hangs on a door frame or a man hangs on a cross, the Old Testament, the plans and purposes of God through the law, they hang on these commandments. This is what ties it all together. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So these are, these are the statements that Jesus has made that surround our context or that surround verse 39, this idea of loving one another or loving our neighbors. So I wanted to make sure that we understood those things before we got into the, the details of how we love our neighbors. And so I wanna read our main text from Matthew again and ask those same two questions. So in verse 37 in Matthew 22, Jesus says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so questions one and two, who is my neighbor? How do I love them? Fortunately for us, uh, somebody else has already asked that question. There's another lawyer in Luke chapter 10 who asked the same question, who is my neighbor? And so I wanna invite you to flip with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we're going to look and see what Jesus has to say because he addresses both of those questions in the same parable. So Luke chapter 10. Verse 25. Says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. With all of your being, you're supposed to love God. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I like to imagine this lawyer asking that question kind of with a smug grin on his face. Again, we're coming back, even though these, these, this passage in Matthew and Luke, they have some differences. At the heart of the matter, there's a man, a, a lawyer who knows the, the law of God. And he's asking Jesus, he's putting Jesus to the test, asking Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? It's self-righteous interest. And Jesus sees right through it. And he says, it's not about what you know, it's about what you are doing. So Jesus sees right through these things and he addresses the self-righteousness in their own hearts. And I pray that as we come to the rest of this parable in Luke chapter 10, that God would do the exact same thing in our hearts, that he would take our hearts and that he would address them and his spirit would speak to our hearts and he would correct any sort of self-righteousness that we have, that we might love our neighbors well. So Jesus goes on in verse 30, he continues and he replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he was and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. And Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So again, the two questions that we're asking and the two questions that we, Jesus has addressed in this text is, 
who is my neighbor and how do I love them? So we're going to start with how do I love my neighbors? If you're taking notes, you can make a note of this. Disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by having compassion. Disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by having compassion. So let's look at the response of the Samaritan man, starting in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. He came to where the Jewish man, half beaten, left for dead on the side of the road was. When he saw him, he had compassion. A question I told you I was a curious person. The question that I asked when I came to this was, okay, well, what does it mean to have compassion? To have compassion is to recognize the suffering of another and to be so grieved in such a way that you are motivated to relieve their suffering. So to have compassion is to recognize the suffering of another and to be grieved in such a way that you are moved and you're motivated to relieve that suffering. Compassion is not sympathy. It's not just feeling bad for somebody. It's not even necessarily empathy. Though you might have some shared experience with that person, you can relate to them. No, having compassion is looking at the needs of someone. It's recognizing the situation, the the anguish that's going on, grieving in it with them, and then being so motivated that you desire to help them. You desire to step into the mess of their situation and to help. I read a really interesting study, a biological study, on uh, what happens in the the human body when uh, you've, you've... you have compassion, I guess. Uh, and there was some, it was done by some secular scientists. Uh, so I'd, but I, I just thought the results were interesting. What they found was that our heart rate slows down, that we secrete oxytocin, which is known as the, the bonding hormone, uh, and the regions of the brain that are specifically linked to empathy, caregiving, and feelings of pleasure light up. So these are all the things that happen in the human body when you experience compassion, when you have compassion for someone else. And what they said was that this was evidence of a deep evolutionary purpose. Now, you and I, as followers of, uh, of Christ and as people who love the word of God, we know that this is far more than an evolutionary process or an evolutionary purpose. No, this is a unique design because the God who made us is a God of deep compassion. He's wired us this way, and therefore to be made in the image of God is to be, in, in which all human beings are, to be made in his image is to be made and to be wired to have feelings and emotions, particularly compassion, because that is the God that we serve. That's the God that we see in the Bible, is a God of compassion. And so that's where this started. That's where loving his neighbor started for the Samaritan man. He saw his neighbor, he saw this Jewish man on the side of the road who was beaten up, half dead, blind, waiting to die. He had compassion. He was grieved in the situation, and he had compassion. I want you to keep that phrase in mind, that he saw and he had compassion. We're going to revisit that in a few minutes. Secondly, uh, disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by going to them. So disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by going to them. So this is what we read uh, again in verse 33 in the very first part of verse 34. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, it says, he went to him. And it would be really easy for us to read this. And I've read this passage a gazillion times, it seems like. And I have overlooked that one phrase every single time, that he went to him. And this is something that I personally have been very convicted about over the last two or three weeks as we've seen things unfolding in our world. Seems like our society is pulling at it, seems. And what is there for me to do about it? I've been praying and asking God to give me wisdom. But this is one of the things that he's convicted me. The Samaritan man saw the situation. He had compassion on the Jewish man that was dying on the side of the road. But unlike the priest and unlike the Levite, the Samaritan's compassion moved him to action. And he went to the Jewish man. He came to the place where he was on the road. He could have kept going like the other two did, 
but he stopped, he got off his animal, or he just he pulled his animal to the side, and he went to the man who was suffering. And I think this is maybe one of the most simple, uh, but also profound and most convicting things that I've seen in God's word in quite a while. And so often in my life, I've lived as if people were supposed to come to me. I was hoping that my, my friends who are lost, that they would just come to me, that my neighbors, that people who have needs would just, if they would just come to me, I have all the answers. My, the college students who are struggling with just making decisions about life, if only they would just come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. And that's not at all what we see this Samaritan man doing. I've been so much like the Levites and the priests in this situation, so concerned with what I'm doing, so concerned with my own things that I've neglected to see the needs that other people around me have. And in the arrogance in my heart, I say, I've got the answers. If only they would just come to me, I would fix all their problems. But I've been so convicted of that because that's not what we see the Samaritan man doing. This beaten up, half dead Jewish man lying on the side of the road didn't have the ability to come to the Samaritan. He didn't have the ability to get up and talk to the priest or the Levite. He was dying. So the Samaritan went to him. He stepped off the road and he went to him. Third, disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by meeting their needs. Disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by meeting their needs. And this is what we see again in verse 34. He went to him and look what he did. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So here you have a half beaten or beaten up, half dead Jewish man bleeding out of everywhere. He's been jumped by robbers. He has no possessions. They've stripped him of everything. In, in all circumstances, if we would have looked at him, especially with the coronavirus, and said, I don't want anything to do with that guy. But the Samaritan man had compassion. The Levites and the Jewish, the Levites and the priests who were of the same uh, race as the Jewish man, they were both, they were all Israelites. They didn't have compassion. They weren't moved to it. But the Samaritan man, he was moved to compassion. And he went over and he helped. And what he did when he got there is he met his needs. He cleaned his wounds and he bound them up. And this road to Jericho from Jerusalem was not a safe road. It was a dangerous road. As we can see, this Jewish man was beaten up. Often people traveled in caravans so they didn't get jumped by robbers. But forsaking his own health, forsaking his own safety, his own comfort, he got off of his animal. If he was on one, if, he, if not, he pulled his animal to the side of the road and he went and he attended to this man's wounds. He cared for his needs. And fourth, disciples of Jesus loved their neighbors by taking them to the place where they can be fully healed and restored. Disciples of Jesus love their neighbors by taking them to a place, to the place where they can be fully healed and restored. And this is what we see in the, the back half of verse 34 and 35. It says, then he set him on his own animal. So not, not only did he just attend to his wounds there, he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So again, not only did he attend to his wounds right there, the physical most pressing needs that he had right there, but he took him to a place where he could recover, where the physical brokenness that he had experienced could be healed and he could be made whole again. He could be restored. So Jesus asks, he finishes teaching this parable and then he asks the lawyer a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And I can only imagine the look on this Pharisee's face because he knew what was going on. He recognized what had happened. And he says, the one who showed mercy, that's the one who was the good neighbor. That's the one who loved his neighbor. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. And it'd be really easy for us to stop right here and say, just do these four things and you'll be good. But to stop right here and to send you out to do that would be to send you headfirst into legalism. You think where if I just do these things right, then God will love me and I'll be good in good shape with God. And I pray that you don't miss who the good Samaritan really is. 
Because the Samaritan in this story in Luke chapter 10 is a fictitious character. He's not a real person. It's a parable. But he points to one who is a real person, who really has had compassion on us, who has come to us, who has tended to our wounds and our needs, and who has provided the healing and restoration that our souls so desperately long for. His name is Jesus. Jesus had compassion for people, and he has compassion on us. Look at these two passages from Matthew and Mark. That phrase I told you earlier, when he saw him, he had compassion. Listen. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus landed, and he saw a crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Again, Mark 6, 34, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. There are numbers of times when Jesus has, we see this same language, that he saw them, and he had compassion. Christ Jesus has seen us, and he has had compassion From eternity past, God has seen our situation and he has had compassion on us and he has done something about it and he has come to us. That's what we celebrate in the gospel, that Christ has come, that God has has put on flesh and he has come, he has lived and he has attended to the very needs that we had. Christ, when he came, one of the things that I've, I've found to be most profound and most convicting over the last couple of weeks is that Christ often didn't just expect people to come to him. Though people did come to him, Christ often went out and found the people who weren't going to come to him, the people who were outcasts. He went outside the camp to the lepers, to the Pharisees, or to, I'm sorry, to the lepers, to the prostitutes, to the people who were not a part of the society, to the people who were outcasts. Jesus went to them. In Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke 19, 10, Jesus tells us his purpose. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek them, not, to, not necessarily for them just to come to him, but to seek and to save the lost. That's exactly what Christ has done. He's met our greatest needs. He has sought us out, and he has met our greatest needs. We needed atonement for sins, and Christ has made it. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. That Christ entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats, or blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing our eternal redemption. We needed peace with God, and Christ has provided it through his blood, Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We needed liberation from the power of sin. Christ has set us free. Colossians 1.13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved son. John 8.36, if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Christ has met our greatest needs. And in him alone do we find the true healing that our souls long for and the restoration that we so desperately want. But please don't miss this. That Jesus Christ is the good Samaritan. And at a great cost to himself, he's made a way for us to be made whole and for a way for us to be healed. So before we think of ourselves as the good Samaritan, which is where we're going with this next part, I think it's important that we remember that we should identify much more with the Jewish man that was beaten up, left half for dead, or left for dead on the side of the road. Dead in our trespasses and sins, broken and lifeless, with no hope for eternity, with no hope for forgiveness. And the great need that we had could never be fixed on our own. But in God's good grace, he had compassion on us. He's come to us in Christ. He's tended to our wounds. He's provided for our needs. And he's provided healing through the blood of his cross. So if you're here this morning and you're with us and you've never experienced the love of Christ, if you're watching with us online and you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, I want to just plead with you and encourage you to ask you to reconsider or to consider for the first time what it is that Christ has done. That at a great cost to himself, he came and he died that we might have forgiveness. And if you have questions, please let us know. You have pastors all over the place that would love to talk to you about that. 
But in this parable, there's much for us to learn as followers of Christ about how, or to learn from Jesus and the Good Samaritan about how we love our neighbors. So we love our neighbors by having compassion on them as Christ has had compassion for us. Have we become so consumed with ourselves, just like the Levites and the Pharisees and the things that we're doing, so long, so consumed with ourselves and our own agendas that our heart no longer breaks for the needs that other people have or no longer even sees the needs that other people have? Maybe we need to reconsider that and to ask God to give us a heart that has compassion for others. We love our neighbors by going to them, by stepping out of our comfort bubbles and into their chaos. Christ has come to us. There's a lot of power in proximity. It's hard for us to love our neighbors well if we don't ever interact with them. If we don't know their needs because we haven't talked with them, we haven't shared an experience with them, if we don't know anything about them, it's really difficult for us to meet their needs. So for us to love people well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us stepping outside of the comfort of my bubble and into somebody else's chaos. Not that we don't have chaos over here too, but for me to love my neighbor well, I have to be willing to step out and, and be uncomfortable to step into somebody else's life and to care for them in that way. And if we don't, then there's not gonna be, we're not going to be able to care for our neighbors and to love them well. We love our neighbors by meeting their needs. Uh, God has physically gifted many of us in this room with uh, financial resources and with time. And those two resources are unbelievably powerful. And God has given those things to us in order that we might be a blessing. Not that we might hoard, not that we might just promote our own self-interest, but that we might be a resource for others. That we might give what we have so that the wounds and the needs of others might be met. And then most importantly, we love our neighbors by caring for their spiritual needs. We can't do this on our own. I, Hunter Sewell, pastor or not, and you insert your name, you cannot care for the spiritual needs of your neighbors. None of us can. The, the half-beaten, the beaten-up, half-dead Jewish man couldn't care for himself. He needed someone else to care for him. And we have such a great debt because of our sin that there is no way that we can care for ourselves, that no way that we can meet our own spiritual needs. And so even though I can't meet the spiritual needs of my friends or my neighbors, what I can do is I can't take them to the one who can and I can take them to Jesus, and I can take them to the foot of the cross and plead with them to be reconciled to God. I can show them what Christ has done in my life and take them to the only one who can save, who can heal, and who can make us whole. There's a lot of neighbors that we have in this city. There's much work to be done in terms of loving our neighbors well. And my hope this morning, as Pastor Bill and I were preparing this sermon, as we were talking about what does it look like for us to love our neighbors, what do we have a desire to see God do, our prayer was that the Spirit of God this morning would stir a passion in our hearts and that we would be so moved by the Spirit of God that we would commit to loving our neighbors well. This is a big task, but it's something that with God's Spirit that we can do. And we pray that as we do this, that God would bless it and that he would draw many to himself. And this, is, this idea of loving our neighbors well is what I believe God is asking for his church to be about. I think so often in my life I've failed to do that. I want to be obedient to God. I want to love my neighbors well. And then finally we come to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And just like the Samaritan, or I'm sorry, just like the Jewish lawyer asking, who is my neighbor? Maybe there's some of us in this room asking the same thing. Well, in the context of the passage... Jesus says that the one who proved to be the neighbor was the Samaritan man. It was a man that both of the lawyers, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, and the, the Jewish man that was beaten, beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, it was the man that they would have considered the Samaritan man to be a, a half-breed, someone who was less than a human. That was the man who proved himself to be a good neighbor. So showing yourself to be a, a good neighbor is about showing mercy to the one who has a need. It's not about a race. It's not about geographic locations. My neighbors are the ones who have needs the ones who are hurting and the ones who are broken, the ones who don't have peace, the ones who don't know Jesus. That's who our neighbors are. 
And in the context of our cultural and societal climate, our neighbors are the black community and people of color who've experienced oppression and they have needs. Our neighbors are any of the 10,000 refugees that have come through Bowling Green in the last 30 years, many of whom have experienced some sort of sex trafficking or war violence, religious persecution, or in severe poverty, who have needs. Our neighbors are also the physical next door neighbors that we have, <laughs> I think Mr. Rogers kind of deal. They're our next door neighbors that have needs. And on the outside, they may not look like it, but on the inside, they are dead and they are lifeless because they have no hope without Christ and they have no relationship with him. Those are our neighbors, our friends, our families, our classmates, the people we work with, people who have needs, particularly a need for Jesus. That's who our neighbors are. But maybe we're a lot more like the lawyer than we think. And we already know who our neighbors are, but because we want to justify ourselves or justify the reason we haven't loved them, we just want to ask questions and say, who is my neighbor? So maybe the better question is not who is my neighbor, but will I love my neighbor? I think if we're honest, many of us already know who our neighbors are. We're just unwilling to love them, to, to do what it takes to love them well. Christ has loved us, and he's restored the brokenness in our lives, and he's made us whole. And his instructions to us are simple. Go and do likewise. It may be said of us that so we are hearers of the word and doers of the word and not just hearers only. It may be said of our church that as we go from this place and as we live our lives, that many would feel the love of Christ through the love that we have for them and that they would experience his love and that they would come to know him as their Lord and as their Savior and that he would be glorified. So let's pray as we finish our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you so overwhelmed by just the way that you have loved us. Every time I come to these passages and see the way that, that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, I can't help but just to be astonished at the way that you have loved me. God, I don't deserve any ounce of your love. But in your grace and your compassion, you have seen that my helpless state, as the, as the hymn says, you've looked upon my helpless state and you have led me to the cross. And at the cross, I behold the love of God displayed that Christ Jesus suffered in my place. So Lord, we come this morning so grateful for the death and the resurrection of Christ, the means of our salvation, that, that we have been reconciled to you and you have restored us and you are restoring us. But God, would you help us to be people who are not just hearers, but also doers of the word and that the love relationship that we have with you would overflow in such a way that we can't help but just to love our neighbors so well. God, give us the eyes to see. Help us to see the needs of our neighbors that are around us. Help us to have compassion and be moved in such a way that we have a desire to step out of our comfort and into their lives so that they might be brought to you, to your feet. God, would you draw them as we go and find them for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I wanted to finish uh, with this benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. It says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be, glory and, er, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We'll see you next week.